Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. What's left to be said about Bill Raftery? We've come to a general consensus. It rarely gets better than when a game is in his comfortable care. The paintbrush he uses is so distinct yet remarkably simple. At 79, he slides with grace and humor and wit around the edge of the hardwood. After last year's national championship game, we wrote about him being as sharp as ever around the edges. If he were a player, his game would be one of quick instincts and a willingness to play his position, but defer to the point guard at the end of games, though he says his best ability is finding a great restaurant with a good bartender on the road. Perhaps it's all a bit simpler than all of that. Perhaps the thing that matters, the only thing that matters, is how much damn fun it is to share a game with him. There's a winking knowingness we all embrace striking a deep chord allowing us to have a little more joy for those two hours. In an industry giving out soaring contracts to the person people most want to sit and have a beer with during the game, Raftery actually feels like he is in your living room. A trick venerable broadcasters learn by being a regular part of their viewers' annual traditions. I feel like I'm out there to enjoy and I hope that the people enjoy what I'm seeing, he told the big lead. It's the same thrill and kick every year. I don't feel like it's work, but I do feel that I owe it to everyone involved in the game to do the best I can. I do think part of the enjoyment is watching what these kids do and what they're capable of doing. Raftery is mayoral. It started by knowing how to work a room, but he's already worked all the rooms worth working. There's a fun uncle vibe, the kind the family takes orbit around. There's never any drop of unnecessary intensity or overzealous criticism. All wrapped up in someone with deft timing themselves, wrapped in what they call the greatest youthful experience possible. To see the players at their best moment in many cases, and in many cases their last moment, where the vast majority it'll be the last official game they may play in, he said, breaks my heart. It's so meaningful to them. They're unabashed about shedding tears or hugging or consoling one of their teammates. It's a special time in their life, and I think that brings you into their life a little bit. There was a finality to this year's broadcast. His last Final Four with Jim Nance, his partner for eight years and teammate for 38 years overall at CBS. Raftery said that he was blessed to have Vern Lundquist so many years, meaning he's been down this road before. Together with Grant Hill and Tracy Wolfson, he and Nance have called their share of remarkable Final Four moments and have been close to rock solid in their presentation. It's the capstone on arguably the most impactful television event 
on the dial across all of sports in terms of a three-week fast break. I know that Nance is in a really good place because I hear him talking with his kids, and I think that was the biggest part of this, that he wants to be a part of watching them enjoy their growth, Rafter, he said. I think the decision was made easier, knowing he's going to have quality time at home. His first two games in studio, I did with him, and we've had a friendship since from different seats. Getting to know him, getting to be around him, and seeing how much he cares for the kids playing is what I've enjoyed. I think the best part are the dinners after the game or between the sites. Those are the most enjoyable moments because everyone's just Jim, Tracy, Grant, just natural. Onions. Double order. A little kiss. A big ticker. Send it in. He could have his own E-Bombs World Era soundboard. They are tidy and memorable and economical. At his best, he sounds like a peak era sports center anchor doing highlights in a live game. Catchphrase can be reductive because why blame someone for creating something everyone wants to hear so much and giving it to them on occasion? The mind reels trying to estimate how many times he's been approached in public with shouted requests like a band with some fan favorites. You know what's funny? Rafter asked me. I'm not nuts about cliches. I remember early on, this man-to-man at the beginning of the game. Really, I just did it as part of getting out of the play-by-play's way. We didn't have the graphics we have now with pop-up pictures and names, things flying on the screen. I used to just do it without knowing I was connecting the letters. Then I'd be in the airport and someone would say, man-to-man, and I'd wonder, what the hell are they talking about? Well, that was me. Going from patrolling the sidelines to patrolling the microphone is in the playbook for a life in basketball. But there's something about a coach. There'll always be a coach. Like if you look closely enough, you could see the faintest tan line from the whistle around their neck. Raftery said, Dave Gavitt told me once, I've watched your team and you should try television. This has helped me be a big part of an extension of coaching, maybe. The first year I missed October 15th a lot. The great thing about coaching that you have and being out of it is the compassion you have for all those who lost. I understand how hard somebody works to be in a game and then lose a game. In the early days, when we weren't running out of buildings, I used to try to say hello to the guy who lost. That part of him is most visible when a made basket is quickly punctuated by Raftery informing us all that the player has that in their game. It's the product of scouting work that has to be done before it even gets on a plane. It reflects a willingness to meet the game on its terms and is powered by a genuine appreciation for all the permutations of basketball and individual strengths and weaknesses. It may sound basic, but audiences want to know the announcers are active and authentic in their excitement. March Madness enjoys breezy buy-in from the public, who are welcomed without barriers, and both the promise to have a hell of a time and a track record to assuage any doubts about how easy it is to be swept away to the next under-12 timeout or 63% free-throw shooter lining up the pivotal front end of a late one-and-one. At this point, it's nearly Pavlovian to give Raftery the same buy-in. He's working, but not making it seem like work. The least a person burrowing into their couch cushions can do would be to match his enthusiasm. Sometimes the simplest explanations are the truest explanations. People like spending time with Bill Raftery. From the comfort of their couches, or from the shadow of the scorer's table, or at a restaurant after the game. It can all boil down to that. Maybe it does all boil down to that. We can analyze the subtle dopamine blast that comes from realizing, certainly not for the first time, he's the exact soundtrack for the moment, 
and that the memory will be a little more special because he's involved. But that sort of takes the fun out of it. Welcome to the big weekend. I'm Kyle Coster of the big lead. The masters are upon us. What a weekend it is. There's something mysterious. There's something precious about this tournament. It both stands timeless, but feels entirely present. Even if you don't like golf, there's something magical about it. It feels like Disney. It feels like a movie set. It feels like going to Venice where you can't believe that this place actually exists. I remember when I was younger, the only way to see what happened on Thursday and Friday was to watch a little wrap-up show that CBS used to put on before David Letterman. You'd get maybe 15 minutes highlights from the course. This little, tiny, parceled-out, curated experience, a little peek behind the curtain. And I think that's kind of what makes Augusta, what makes the Masters so indelible makes it stand out makes it unlike almost anything and all of sports now in a world where we have everything on demand we have eyes everywhere we have increased broadcast rights we have espn partnering with cbs for the coverage giving you look-ins making sure you don't miss a single shot from tiger woods who's going to give it a go out there god bless you tiger let's hope you make the cut the longer you hang around, the more interesting it will be for everybody. But I wondered if giving everybody what they want, giving it to them on demand in this instance made it harder to retain the preciousness of Augusta. So I asked Scott Van Pelt on an open call to media if there was any of that in the back of his mind. And he said, no. Why? These are his words. Because Christmas is Christmas. You know what I'm saying? Seriously. When you wake up on that day, no matter how old you are, there's a feeling. I think the greatest things about sports are the things that make you feel. Athletes can do that. Games, venues. And I feel like St. Andrews does that. There's a long list that you can name. But the two that jump to mind are that and Augusta National. And I understand what you're saying. There's more access now. People would love to be able to see every single shot on every single hole. And there are apps that can help you with all that. But I think that even in this world that gets more cynical and has more access than it ever has before, there's certain things that the access to it is going to remain special because it's going to feel different than anything else. I think Augusta National and the Masters are on that real short list of something that makes you feel a certain way. And the minute you hear the piano, the minute you see those shots that are so instantly recognizable, you can close your eyes and see them right now. I don't think you have to work at it to make it feel precious. I think it just is. He's right about that. I think there's a danger of oversaturation in a lot of spheres and a lot of windows. But I think that what ESPN has done is integrate itself into the coverage, working with the Masters, which has a very specific presentation hasn't cheapened it at all hasn't changed the allure i think it was pretty impressive feat and i think it's great that we can have both we can have the best of both worlds we can have more but it can feel just as exclusive and i'm really looking forward to it is this 
Jordan Spieth, is he going to be all the way back? We certainly hope so. My pick, Tony Finau. I think Tony gets one. Throw a little spice in there. I like a live golfer to be in contention late, maybe in the final pairing on Sunday. It would be great for golf, be great for drawing battle lines. But no matter what happens, I think what's amazing about this weekend is it's always going to deliver. It writes a story that stands alone, that doesn't need affirmation from the outside. It just is. And it's self-contained as it's meant to be. When we come back, you'll hear my interview with Paul Hembakitis. Hembo from Get Up and ESPN fame, the subject of a long rambling profile I wrote uh, right as the pandemic was striking. He has a new book with Mike Greenberg called Got Your Number. He'll explain what all that is. I really encourage everybody to check it out. It sounds like a really good text for understanding sports. Um, Wikipedia on steroids, you're going to learn a lot. It's not just for the number nerds, as he explains. He's going on Good Morning America in a few days. Uh, I tried to make him really nervous about that, but we talked for about a half hour and enjoy. What was the initial idea? And then what did the idea turn into when the finished product was out? Sure. Um, so uh, there was a day in the spring of 2020, not too long after Rudy Gobert touched all those microphones, <laughs> um, but we were all uh, as locked down as could possibly be, especially here in the Northeast. When I received this, like, uh, kind of felt like an epiphany phone call from Mike Greenberg some afternoon saying that he had just uh, stumbled across the greatest idea in the world and he wanted to, to create a book out of it and he wanted me to help him with it. And so in short, he was having a conversation with a bunch of members of the Get Up staff after one of the shows and they got into an argument as to who owns the number 12, all these legendary quarterbacks having worn number 12. In that case, it's pretty easy. I mean, TB12, it's Tom Brady. I mean, that that was – it wasn't much of a debate. It was more an observation that all these great quarterbacks wore the same number. And our boss happened to ask the question, well, who is the actual owner of it? And such, or, and as such, the idea was conceived. And so that was the origin of the project. And honestly, that's pretty much exactly what we executed. Now, I want to make clear. So it's the book is called Got Your Number. There's, there are 100 chapters, uh, 100 essays that – Greeny wrote, which I supplied the research for, and only 56 of, of the 100 chapters are actual jersey numbers, because what we discovered is that you don't want to wind up writing a book like this and have to spend all of the 70s writing about obscure offensive linemen, right? And so that's kind of the fun wrinkle here. Like, you're going to see a lot of recognizable chapters with players, like three is Babe Ruth, and spoiler alert, 23 is Michael Jordan, and 99 is Wayne Gretzky, and 42 is Jackie Robinson, and so on and so forth. But that was his, his idea from the jump. It's generally speaking the idea that we executed from soup to nuts and we made exceptions for numbers for whom there were not any obvious great options. And in those cases, we made exceptions like uh, who, which player might own a record or which player may have dominated a year, things of that nature. And so that's kind of the conceit of the book. And I think we honestly stayed pretty close to the original conceit, uh, to the vision, and ultimately we're really happy with the product. We should probably take a step back uh, and explain your relationship with Greeny and also your relationship with numbers. Uh, if you could kind of just take us through your time at ESPN, that partnership and what you specifically do and why it seems like, hey, if you were ever going to write a book, this is exactly what it is. Yes, it feels like I was put on the earth to do this exact thing. Um, so my work here is done. Uh, I've been at ESPN for nearly 10 years. I was hired as like an entry level 
researcher in stats and info. Um, I first got hooked onto the Mike and Mike show in the spring of 2015, and I stayed on with them until the very last day that they had. I was the uh, show researcher for them. We did all sorts of remote events together, uh, all sorts of bits, all sorts of gags. I mean, look, you're familiar with the show. Most people listening are probably familiar with what that show was. And Greenberg uh, sort of recruited me to go down to New York City with him and launch Get Up. Um, we actually just passed our five-year anniversary from the from the launch date. And he and I are the only remaining people that started in New York doing the show that are still here. And so that's kind of um, the, the the upshot in terms of how I started here and my relationship with him. I've been his kind of, he likes to call me his right-hand man ever since. Uh, it began as the person that supplied him all the numbers, all the research. It has evolved into something a little bit larger now, having sort of been his sidekick and co-host on his radio show on ESPN Radio now for like the last three years or so. And so we've obviously used the radio show as a vehicle, not only of you know promotion for the book, but also to turn this into the kind of debate and conversation that is sort of at the ethos and heart of all the sports fans, you know, any sports fan that you might know. We've yet to tell someone about this idea or explain what we've done without someone having some opinion about who should own what number, right? That's kind of part of the fun. Like numbers are kind of the universal language of sports fans. And no matter how passionately you follow sports, no matter how casually you follow sports, you're at least in some sense numbers fluid. And what I've discovered is that, you know, being able to use numbers to tell stories, my numbers and his words, you know, have created something here that's that's pretty special. So that's kind of the, you know, 30,000 view of what I've done, how long I've been here and, and my relationship here with the author. Uh, you were the subject of one of the longer profiles on the big Actually, shortly before this idea was hatched, it sounds like. How much grief did you take for that? <laughs> um I, honestly very little grief uh, a few people that read it were uh flabbergasted by the lengths at which you went to to describe my day in detail but uh, i have no idea how well it did or uh who was interested in it what i do know is that a lot of people did reach out to me and were kind of fascinated by what, what i do on a daily basis i'm not exactly sure why probably because you hear my nickname on espn from time to time and kind of wonder all about it but it's probably something of a dream job for a lot of people and if you had told me when i was like i don't know 15 years old that I would be doing something approximating this, I would have told you that job doesn't exist. And so you brought that to life in a way for which I really appreciate. It was pretty long, but uh, you know, I almost finished it uh, reading it from what I recall. <laughs> yeah, that paid by word. Um, you know, we put in a nice underground pool in the back. So that was, that was a nice thing. For us. Boy. Numbers have become such a huge part of sports, um, maybe too much for some people. But I always make the argument that they have to make sense in the narrative picture as well you have to mold the two and you see like front offices doing that and it's basically what anybody who kind of is going to approach sports from a thoughtful perspective but also want to continue enjoying it is there ever a time where the numbers become so front of mind for you that it's gotten in the way of just enjoying sports? at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's a great question, and the answer is yes. Uh, this might surprise you, but the, but the more and more that I immerse myself in the data, the less and less interested I am in like just the beauty of the sport. And so when young people ask me about working in the world of sports and doing something approximating what I do, I often kind of uh, mention that and say, look, it's the greatest decision I've ever made in terms of my career. 
but it's going to change the way that you do sports, you know, because when you're growing up, you fall in love. You don't fall in love with the data. You don't fall in love with the information. I mean, you might enjoy memorizing the back of your the back of the baseball card or winning the trivia contest or, you know, fill in the blank. That's kind of how I came you know, to age of, as a sports fan. But there's also something just really nice about just watching the game and enjoying it and its beauty and its detail and its intricacy and its nuance, right? Like that's, that is sports, you know, and I don't know that the increase in information has made sports better or more beautiful. Like statistically speaking, isn't the most gripping way <laughs> to start a sentence when trying to prove your point. Like ultimately sports are meant to be enjoyed. They serve no other purpose. And if, and if you're one who doesn't enjoy being hit over the head with data and numbers, I honestly get it. Like sometimes you just want to watch the game and not be inundated with all that information. So to me, it's not just about like, just because we have the information doesn't mean we should, we should use all of it. We use, the, the best way to use information, honestly, is sparingly and strategically. If you can use numbers to tell a story, being able to do that once in an inning is way better than using it across the entire at-bat just to use the baseball analogy. So believe it or not, I think there's enormous power in the numbers, but in some cases, less is more. And I think we are going the exact opposite route, especially in a lot of broadcasts today. Yeah, I wonder if some people have started using it as a crutch almost where it's almost like, okay, well, these numbers exist. So I don't need to exist as the person who's synthesizing it when the fans at home are, you know, contextualizing in any different way based on their perspective. So you got a hundred chapters ballpark. I know that you hate uh, rough estimations, but how many of these were just absolute layups where the first thing that came to your mind was exactly what you settled on and how many changed through the course of your research? Yeah, I would say that there were something like half that were slam dunks, maybe even a little bit less, to be honest with you. I mean, some of the some of the numbers, the ones I already described, are are fairly easy. Like you think about a jersey number and some of the most iconic ones in the history of sport, they're naturally going to be matched there. But we also wanted to do the very best we could to capture more than a century, really, of sporting life. And if you're doing that, you have to dig pretty deep. So like just choosing, you know, the the best players that were each numbers in the four major sports, honestly, was just the very start of the project. I'm looking at my breakdown here because, of course, I had to dump all this into Excel. Uh, why else would I be existing? So like I mentioned, 56 of the 100 chapters are jersey numbers. Among those, I would say at least half were fairly obvious. But there's, there's 44 remaining chapters, of course, that we filled here. 20 of the 100 chapters are records. I'm going I'm to give you a good example as a spoiler alert. But Will Chamberlain's in the book. Now, if I asked you which number uh, do you more associate with Will Chamberlain, 13, his jersey number, or 100, the number of points he scored in that game, what would be your answer to that question? Well, it'd probably be 20,000, but out of those two, I would say 100. This book um, eventually will wind up getting to 20,000. Um, that would have taken a lot longer to write. The answer is 100, in, in, in our opinion. Just like we think Roger Maris owns the number 61. He didn't wear 61, but he hit 61 home runs in 1961. And so those, and, and some of those were fairly obvious as well. What's kind of unique about our book, too, is that, like I mentioned, there are some numbers for whom there are very few players handedly worth writing about. So 18 of the 100 chapters are, are, are based upon years or teams. And so, for example, again, spoiler alert, the 1972 Dolphins are the only legitimate uh, perfect team in the history of, of, of pro football. The 72 Dolphins own number 72 in our book. And that was an easy one because there is no one that wore 72 that came close to accomplishing what they did as a team that year. So I'm answering your question in a roundabout way. But but in, but in truth, 
I would say there were more challenging decisions than not challenging decisions because once you open up the whole can of worms and you're not going to just do jersey numbers and tag them to four major sports, once you want to open it up to individual athletes, uh, obviously female athletes, horses, cars, etc., you have a whole world in front of you and you have to like turn over every single stone. And as the researcher for this project, that was obviously my responsibility. So it's one thing to say, yeah, Carlton Fisk wore 72, I think, and there's a 72 Dolphins. Obviously what you're driving at is trying to capture kind of the zeitgeist, the thing that is indelible about sports, which is the perfect season that stands to this day. Do you remember the most intense argument, the hardest call you had to make? Yes. Um, there, there, there are two in particular at the very front of the book that were exceedingly challenging. Chapter four and chapter seven. So chapter four includes Brett Favre, Bobby Orr, and Lou Gehrig. So Favre is probably, in the scope of those three players, the, most, the greatest modern legend of the three, obviously, based upon the timeline, but probably the third best among those three in relation to his peer, right? Or in relation to his sport in its entirety. Lou Gehrig is the only player to ever wear number four for the Yankees. He was the first person to ever wear four for the Yankees because that's where he occupied, that's where, you know, the spot he occupied in the batting order. Uh, the luckiest man speech. The first jersey number ever, ever retired, right? Like, that's a, I'm a baseball guy, so that, that struck me as the most obvious choice. Bobby Orr is probably the second greatest hockey player that ever lived. So, like, if you have to choose, like, again, in Lou Gehrig's case, I think, personally, the first number I think of is 2130. We have 100 chapters, not 20,000 chapters like you just mentioned. Ultimately, spoiler alert, we made the decision that Bobby Orr owns the number four because in that particular case, in relation to his sport, he was the greatest. But you can make a good faith argument for the other two. The other number is number seven, which was exceedingly challenging because it has John Elway and Mickey Mantle and Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, for the younger fan, Ronaldo might feel like a slam dunk. It's not obvious to me that his legend is going to last as long as either of the other two, though. And again, generally speaking, who we're writing this for is the American sports fan, which has to be taken into account. Mickey Mantle, based upon the populace that's going to be reading this book, is probably going to be everyone's first choice, right? Retires with 536 home runs, all the World Series records and all the stuff. John Elway's case, I think, is honestly awesome. He, he, he remains to this day one of two quarterbacks to start five Super Bowls, with Tom Brady being the other. He is the entire city of Denver. I mean, if, if you've created a Denver Mount Rushmore sports and there was an avalanche that washed away the other three faces, his is the last one standing. He retired with the third most yards and touchdowns in NFL history. So those two were so hard. We ultimately went with Elway. But, like, there's no wrong choice for either of those. So that's kind of the tough part of this thing, right? So, like, you're making – there's, in many cases, multiple right answers, and you have to justify your decision based as as best that you possibly can. But we understand that not everyone that, read, that, that reads is going to be satisfied, but that's kind of part of the fun. You mentioned something that I think is an interesting part of this, is that you said you're writing this for the American sports fan. Are you writing it for the get-up viewer? Are you writing it for the person who would – pick up a sports book at the Barnes and Noble. How, how, and when did you determine the audience that you're defining it for? Yeah. So we have there, not all 100 um, chapters are filled with American athletes, but as you might imagine, the vast majority of, of them are this book, honestly, majors in sports history. And, and I'm pretty proud of that. So like I even consulted the ESPN sports century list from 2000 as a means of like, let's make sure I don't miss anybody really, really important. So like if you're if you're going to pick up this book and just assume you're going to see 100 jersey numbers and you're going to see a lot of modern athletes like it's only partially true. For example, 
Chapter 36 is one of my favorites. In 1936, Jesse Owens might have had the most legendary Olympic Games of all time. In our book, in our, in, in our opinion, is that Jesse Owens owns the number 36 because of that performance in front of Hitler. And we go into detail, not only the, you know, the, the results from those Olympic Games, but also the context behind it. We're covering a lot of ground here. And so honestly, this book will probably be enjoyed the most by older sports fans for whom history is very, very important. But if we're looking to capture the, the, the scope of more than a century of, of history, like I said, that was our responsibility. To me, it would have been it would have been malpractice if I would have chosen Dale Earnhardt over Babe Ruth, because that doesn't capture what we're trying to do here. And so I don't exactly know how to answer your question. I think if, if you if you no matter how old you are, if you love history, you're going to love the book. But honestly, this is going to be a book, I think, if I had to guess, enjoyed more by the older sports fan who lived a lot more of this than I did. All right, I'm going to get personal here uh, and ask about, you know, how does this feel? I mean, how did it feel when you were at the beginning stages and you realized you had all the work in front of you? And how does it feel to see it all come together and kind of be in places that you probably never expected to be? Like, I think I saw, I don't know if it happened already, but I saw Good Morning America hit teased and all this. Um, what, is that, what does that bring to you? You know what I mean? Like, because you've accomplished some things in your career, but this is obviously in a different sector. I've come a long way since your 30,000 word profile. So, um, yes, G uh, Good Morning America, Friday at 8.40 in the morning. So uh, for those 10 minutes, as you, you're going to watch Mike Greenberg and you're going to see the, the person sitting between Mike Greenberg and Robin Roberts with his uh, hands shaking is going to be me. That's who you're going to say. Um, the, 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 the honest answer to your question, though, is it's it's it, it's a it's a very cool feeling, but it's honestly somewhat indescribable because most of this work was done more than a year ago like i mean uh, the process by which you write a book is pretty lengthy and a little bit unwieldy based upon how long it takes to turn it over and so like there are very few people that actually got to enjoy this up until now even though it's been on ice for such a long time so once you finish it you kind of put it uh, on the back burner and then you just continue living your life and now it's been this kind of slow trickle of twitter notifications and instagram stories and and your friends and family who begin getting it and reading it and we did a book signing on sunday and like it was just so cool to how 100 people show up and sign all their books and take pictures with them and answer all their questions like it's for me like it's the, you know the first time in my career that i've done anything quite like this. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm the front man for this. I mean, you know, Greenberg's got more than a million Twitter followers and I'm kind of riding, you know, riding on the sidecar here, but that's, you know, that's fine. This is the partnership that I've chosen and it's been, you know, super, uh, you know, prosperous for both of us. Honestly, I, I think what this is going to, what this has proven to me once and for all is that this is probably a good lane for me to occupy because, you know, the numbers that I so enjoy digging up for this, like aren't really things that you're going to see on TV. Because if you're watching TV now, you're going to mostly see us talking about contemporary things with contemporary athletes and all of these. But there's, but there's, there, there's a huge appetite we found uh, uh, amongst those uh, in our viewership that really enjoys this kind of content, that really enjoys the nostalgia, that really does enjoy the debate, that really does enjoy the numbers and the history. And I really en enjoy digging in because this is kind of the reason I became a sports fan. If I had read this book when I was 10 years old, I would have read, read it five times and I would have been hooked. You know, this is kind of, you know, how I look back on it now. So that's not a direct answer to your question. It's obviously indescribably cool, but the emotion kind of comes and goes and it's kind of a rush that kind of trickles in sometimes and floods in sometimes. But I would imagine on Friday when I'm sitting there next to, you know, Robin Roberts or Michael Strahan and I'm I'm you know, talking about I don't know how we chose Roberto Clemente over Deion Sanders but I'm gonna pinch myself in that moment and say how in the world did I get here there's something too about like just the different physical medium right you can hold a book in your hands and it's see you can leaf through it and there's some weight to it and I think that like that's something that we've lost 
as a society not to get like too heady, but I feel like when you can hold something in your hands, it feels like you've really accomplished something as opposed to an ephemeral TV segment or blog post. Um, I think that's a good point. And like, we're going to date ourselves here. But I mean, you and I both grew, grew up reading books and reading the newspaper and you know, cutting out, you know, clips from the sports page and stuff like that's that's what we do. Like That's who we are. Um, I went to Barnes and Noble yesterday, a local Barnes and Noble here with my my twin girls are seven months old. My wife who went over there and I just there's like a, you know, like a, in the nonfiction new, you know, new editions uh, section or book is just sitting there next to like Jessica Simpson's book. Right. And it's like, how is this real? Like, how is it actually happening? And when you can hold something in your hands, there's actually something to it. Like I. I, you're 100 percent right if we wind up hitting the bestseller list i'm going to go to the gas station i'm going to get the new york times from that day and i'm going to cut that out because like there is actually something to that i don't know if the like psych- if the research suggests that there's something more intrinsic or valuable about holding something in your hand and reading it versus reading it on a screen but you are right like the brick and mortar nature of this is something that is special and the first time that the publisher sent me a box of these and i leafed through it and held it in my hand and saw my picture in the jacket and and all like that it is actually an incomparable feeling. Like I had twins last year. That obviously comes first. Beyond that, like there aren't many things in my life that have felt quite that significant. And I think you touched on something there that is quite valuable no matter how old you are. Do you remember a a moment where you thought, uh, we're not gonna get there? Did you have any self-doubt creeping? <laughs> how did you get past that? Um I would say that my self that self-doubt came more before we began in earnest. So Greeny called me with the idea in the spring of 2020. But it was a little while before we actually hit the ground running, like, you know, in order to get everything lined up with a publishing company and an and agreement in place and all those kinds of things like that's a world that moves at a glacial pace. I, I, I work in TV every day. So like everything is so trans, everything is so expedited, right? Everything is so fast moving. And, you know, like I'm stunned if like someone doesn't email me back in eight minutes to have waited literally months to get this kind of set in stone. That's honestly the only time for which I ever like doubted the thing would come to fruition. But I can honestly tell you that once we like once we got through, I think like very early on in the process, spoiler alert, when I sent him a bunch of Bill Russell research for number six and he sent it back to me with his essay. And I remember reading it. I was like, this is so bleeping good, man. If we can do a hundred of these, this thing is gonna be great. And we and we did. So getting like that kind like because these are a hundred small essays, this is not something that had to build over time. Like once we kind of got a cadence and a rhythm. Like it was just good. And I could tell from the beginning it was going to be good. And that kind of motivated and inspired me the rest of the way. Is there any part of you that's worried that this uh, press tour is going to tear the team apart? I saw Tannenbaum catch a stray. I saw Stugatz corner you and ask you some questions about Greeny. How's uh, how's the clubhouse? <laughs> Stu, yeah, Stugatz asked me to come on his podcast and list the five things I hate about Greeny that Greeny doesn't know that I hate about Greeny. So like he's... He's looking, he's looking to break up the team. Like he's hoping here we're in this case for the 98 Bulls, right? Like he's hoping this is our last thing. The fact of the matter is uh, our relationship is as good as ever. And I think uh, if the book does as well as, as um, we both hope and expect, we're both going to be as rich as ever. So <laughs> uh, the partnership is in, in great shape. Um, that, that man has done more for my career, as you might imagine, than anyone by an order of magnitude. And for that, I'm endlessly grateful. I've worked really hard. I've gotten really lucky. And like I told Stu Gotts on that podcast, the very best thing to do, if you show up somewhere, is find an influential person to give you a, a clever nickname and say it over and over and over again on TV until everyone remembers it. That's That was that was our shared advice. And that's worked well for both of us. <laughs> I think that's what, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the same, uh, yeah, it's the same career path. I uh, mean, I'm behind yeah. the eight ball. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of the chapters for whom we found a a 
clever option or an option that might be counterintuitive. The example I'll use, and then I'll let you go, is number 26. So number 26 was worn by some great athletes. It was worn by one of my, my favorite Philly ever, Chase Utley. It was worn by Wade Boggs. It was worn by Rod Woodson. I mean, it was worn by legendary athletes. But we gave number 26 to the greatest marathon runner of all time. 26.2 miles, of course, is the length of the race. His name is Elliot Kipchoga. He is uh, he, he broke the two-hour uh, two marathon in an unofficial race. We go a long way in describing the history of the race itself, its significance to culture, its significance to the world of sport. And like those are the chapters for whom I'm for which I'm most proud. Chapter 67, spoiler alert, is Vince Scully. Vince Scully called Dodger baseball for 67 years. And there are some unbelievable numbers in chapter 67 that like even make my head spin as someone who does this for a living, right? And so that's what I'm most proud of. Like it, any most anybody could have chosen Pete Rose to, to be chapter 14 and write. 500 good words about it using his best stats. Like that doesn't require all that much ingenuity, but I, we left no stone unturned when it came to making sure that we chose the very best people and placed them in the best possible spots. Even if they were outside the box, I gave you two examples there for 26 and 67. I think that's the thing for which I'm the most proud. What haven't you been asked uh, on this tour that you wanted to get to? <laughs> well, honestly, Stugatz asked me everything. He asked me what I hated about Greeny. He asked me what percentage of the cut I'm receiving. He asked me all the questions uh, for, for which you don't want to uh, be asked or have to answer. So there's definitely, like, having done this, I would say the thing that I have taken away is that it, I've been so overwhelmed by how, like, how everyone has so been attracted to the idea. Uh, I, I'm like, one of these days, I'm going to be asked something for which I'm stumped. But the, the nature of our research, I think, was so thorough that we have an explanation or justification for everything. So I would like to sit here and say, like, I've been dying to answer this question about this person. Like, maybe someday I'll, I'll, I'll be asked that, like, how did you justify this over this and be able to kind of debunk whatever preconception that person has? But the fact of the matter is, I think our research was airtight enough for which I have provided ourselves enough of a defense that we can at least, uh, uh, I guess, cast off the onslaught uh, if and when we do wind up getting uh, chastised for whatever decisions we may have made. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.